If you would, open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Which, by the way, when he wrote it was not the sixth chapter. It was just the last part of his letter. Uh, He didn't have it in in chapters. Um, We're in a series, Imagining the Kingdom. Imagining the Kingdom. And um, might be the... The end of the series today. It's a, certainly our the end of our section in, in in Ephesians. I'm not sure whether to go with a different title for the next series or keep it because it's still relevant. But anyway, we'll probably change it. Uh, but imagining the kingdom and and uh, the subtitle for this uh, particular message is preparing yourself for the evil day. Preparing yourself for the evil day. I did think about just using last week's subtitle, God's subversive ways of power, and making it part two. Because it really is that as well. But uh, if you would read with me in Ephesians 6 verse 10. uh, And we'll read through verse 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your Word, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what you're saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I doubt that any would argue that we aren't experiencing the disintegration of what was once conventional culture. Some wiser than I have suggested the tipping point of this disintegration was the end of the Cold War and the beginning of what came next, a world no longer stabilized by its agreement on a common enemy, which, as Gil Bailey describes it, began to fall into confusion, animosity, and violence. Describing this cultural freefall, Bailey goes on to note that the family as an institution is in such disarray that sitcoms have to redefine it each fall in order to appear relevant. And he was writing in the mid-90s. Think what he would say today. It doesn't take great discernment to see that we are in a culture war, as it were. But two points of discernment are essential for us as the church. First, we must not mistakenly equate the culture war with spiritual warfare, at least not the spiritual warfare that we are to take part in. And second, we must discern legitimate means of warfare for the follower of Jesus, the Nazarene. We are easily drawn into a vision of warfare that is contrary to the gospel of peace, which we proclaim. When I was 20 months old, On May the 1st in 1964, 
in Honolulu, Hawaii, the same city where I happened to be living at that time. So I was there, but not at this event. And I just mentioned that because it's just so weird to read about something that happened in the same place where you were at the time. <laughs> You're just completely disconnected from it, of course. But at that time, without asking my permission or without my presence, Scott Peck's wife was awarded her citizenship along with 200 other new citizens right there in Honolulu, Hawaii. He describes the event this way, quote, The festivities began with a parade. Three companies of spit-and-polished soldiers with rifles gleaming marched around the field and took their formation behind seven howitzers. The cannons were then used to offer a roaring 21-gun salute to the occasion. At this point, the governor of, of Hawaii stepped to the podium just in front of the still-smoking howitzers. This is what he said. Today is referred to as May Day, he began. But our nation has designated it as Law Day. Here in Hawaii, he quipped, we might call it Lay Day. L-E-I, you know, the flower wreaths you put around the neck. Anyway, the point is, he goes on to say, that here we are celebrating this day with flowers, while in the communist countries they are having military demonstrations. No one laughed, Peck goes on to say. No one laughed. It was as if the absurdity, the insanity, went unnoticed. This undoubtedly intelligent, certainly dignified man, with three companies of soldiers standing at attention behind him, while the smoke of seven cannon encircled this, his head, chastising the Russians for the military nature of their festivities. The governor thought he was celebrating the law or even flower necklaces. He was unaware of the violence of his own demonstration. In Tampa Bay, we annually have the Tampa Bay Air Fest. I've been to it. It's really cool. <laughs> it's billed to have heart-pounding, this is a quote from the website, heart-pounding air performances and family-friendly activity, end quote. We rarely consider it a display of military might, which it is. We recognize displays of weapons aimed at us, but are far less likely to recognize our weapons pointed at our enemies. This section on the armor of God and the spiritual warfare that it represents and speaks of may be the best-known passage from Paul's epistles and possibly the least understood one evidence of this is the armor of God dress-up materials de designed after a Roman soldier that you can buy for your kids, even on Amazon today. You used to have to go to the Bible bookstore to get it, whatever those are now. <clears throat> that whole design after a Roman soldier uh, isn't what Paul had in mind and likely reinforces a counter-message to Paul's point. Another evidence that we don't understand it is the literalistic and individualistic understanding of the armor, which, once again, leads us away from understanding Paul's point. To, to grasp Paul's point, I suggest that we must see the irony in Paul's use of this armor metaphor. 
We, we, we have to be somebody who at that citizenship celebration in 1964 would have laughed because we recognize the absurdity of what's being said. We have to read Paul's statements and laugh to a certain degree at the absurdity of what he's suggesting. The things Paul describes in this armor are not militaristic in the least, and it is more like the Hawaiian wreaths of flowers against all that evil can offer. You can't be serious, preacher, for what can flowers do against evil? Fair point. But then again, what can being crucified do against evil? We also must understand who is intended to wear this armor, which we will get to soon enough. The finally, that begins this section, finally, as verse 10 begins, um, sounds as if Paul, you know, this is kind of like the last thing he's going to talk about in a long list of things that he's talking about. And I think that kind of leads us away from an important thing to note. The phrase most likely means something like henceforth or going forward. We, we might read it something like this. In, in light of all I've said, and in light of what he has said, Paul calls the church to prepare itself for the day of evil as the messianic warrior Jesus, the Messiah, the promised king did, knowing that the enemy is not other humans. You see, we last week's title, Subversive Ways of Power, we looked at from was it chapter uh, 5, verse 21, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, where subjugating ourselves became the means of overturning power, which seems rather absurd to us. Well, likewise, what we see here today is that Paul is now more broadly applying those same principles as we work through our text. And so we're going to explore the text under three headings. Whose armor? Whose fit? What armor? Whose armor? Whose fit? You could say whose size, if you prefer. <laughs> what armor? And so under that heading, whose armor? Let's consider. Whose armor is it? If Paul didn't borrow it from a Roman soldier, as I offered earlier, and he didn't, then from whom did he borrow this imagery of, uh, of armor? Well, he borrowed it from Isaiah, uh, chapter 59, but in Isaiah it was a particular character that was to wear it. There, the Lord observes in the 59th chapter of Isaiah, where you might be familiar with that section where the Lord looks and he asks, is my arm too short to save? Is my arm too short to deliver? But he, he looks for someone who might do right in the land and he can find no one to act on behalf of the people. He sees the dilapidated condition of the people of God. They are looking for deliverance. And he's looking for a deliverer, but he finds no intercessor, no deliverer to act on their behalf. Their hands, it says, were stained with blood, their fingers with guilt. Now, most in that audience of the Israelites in Isaiah's day would be surprised by this, for they were not likely directly killing anyone. Their neglect was behind the death of many, however, apparently. No one was calling for justice. They did not walk in the way of peace, or know the paths of justice. So, it says, beginning in verse 9, So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Notice this 
language. You've got justice and righteousness, but then the metaphor for them are light and versus darkness and brightness versus deep shadows. And recall in Ephesians, Paul's statement that we are children of light and must therefore walk in the light. I don't think Isaiah 59 was far from his mind even when he was commenting on that back in chapter 5, but certainly it's on his mind here in chapter 6. So we go on to read in verse 14, Justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord is so displeased that there is no justice and that that his own arm would now have to, to do it. And who is his own arm? Jesus, the Messiah. And so in verse 17 of Isaiah 59, it says, He, this, this arm of God, He put on righteousness as His breastplate and the helmet of salvation or deliverance on His head. That word for salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. You might recognize that as Yeshua, the name of Jesus Himself. Salvation. You see, this, this right arm of God that is coming to, to enact justice and, and truth and, and bring about right and to deliver those who are oppressed, well, this, this one coming in this armor was the OG justice warrior. In Isaiah 11, verse 5, it speaks of the promised king, the Messiah, that will have uh, faithfulness as the sash around his waist. Faithfulness as the sash, you could say belt, around his waist. In the Greek Old Testament, the word there is the same as in Ephesians. When it says the belt of truth, it's truth. Truth as the sash around his waist. Binding our feet in preparation of the gospel, the, the good proclamation of peace, takes a phrase from Isaiah 52, 7, which declares, again, in the Greek Old Testament, it declares, beautiful the feet that gospelize peace, that proclaim peace. But again, euangelion, it's, it's a verbal form of the word gospel. We don't have such a word. We might say evangelize, but that doesn't really mean much to us because we don't know that that's the root word of the gospel itself. So gospelize would be maybe a clearer way to say it, but they gospelize peace. They proclaim this phenomenal news of peace that has come. How did it come? Well, Ephesians 2, verse 17 tells us that Jesus came and gospelized peace, proclaimed peace to those who were far away and those who were near. And he made that peace by the blood of the cross. It's the same armor that we are to wear of the divine warrior king whom God would send for the sake of restoring shalom, peace, to his people. Now, we're told that this Messiah would come and he would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, but here in Ephesians we discover that the rod of his mouth is what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Words. Words of truth spoken. Words of what Christ has done. That must be responded to. You see, this, this war isn't about evil culture out there in the world. It's about transforming the evil culture plaguing God's household. 
In Isaiah 59, it wasn't the people of the nations that were the chief concern. It was the people of Israel that were the chief concern. And it's not a conventional war by any means, as if it were a war. It's, it's more as if it were a war on war itself. According to Ephesians 6.13, we must put this armor on so that when the day of evil comes, we will be able to stand. In this sense, it's like a boot camp and military exercises. We must do the training in order that when the day of battle comes, we are up to the task. You don't just arrive at a battle ready to go if you've never trained for that kind of an event. You have to train for that. If you ever wonder why boot camp is so brutal, why why there's so much complete and total degradation of the person who arrives for boot camp by those in charge, the name-calling, the, the harassing, the, the, the complete and total, almost dehumanizing of that person, it's because if they don't get that drilled into them, they're not going to do what they need to on the battlefield. We have to do some training to be ready when the day of evil comes. Jesus was ready when the day came. He was the divine warrior that fulfilled Isaiah 59. And we read about how ready he was in a number of places. I'll just cite a couple. But in Matthew 26, 45, it says, Then he, Jesus, returned to the disciples and said to them, Now this is the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there to pray and he keeps asking them to pray. And every time he returns to them, what does he find? They're sleeping. He says, you know, can you not pray with me one hour? But then he returns and says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh, I'm sorry, I jumped, I jumped a line. He says, Are you sleeping, still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Now, he had been praying so that he might be ready when they arrived to take him. In John 12, 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But then we read in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, Jesus understood the counterintuitive ways of God. The, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be exalted, to be lifted up. Except he's referring to a cross upon which they will lift him. You know, we think, oh, wouldn't it be great to be exalted and lifted up? And Jesus said, yes, I'll be exalted, I'll be lifted up. It'll be on a post, on a cross where I will die. But if I'm lifted up, that will enable all the world to see me. Better vantage point. When evil lifted Christ up from the earth on a cross, it raised him for all to see, enabling him to draw all to himself. In other words, evil's schemes, evil's schemes backfired when Jesus fought in the Father's mighty power, rather than in the arm of the flesh. In the middle of the last century, Gail D. Webb, uh, in his book, The Night and Nothing, said this. He said, there are dozens of ways to deal with evil and several ways to conquer it. All of them are facets of the truth that the, the, that the only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human being. There are dozens of ways to deal with evil. 
and several ways to conquer it. All of them are facets of the truth that the only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human being. When it is absorbed there, like blood in a sponge or a spear into one's heart, it loses its power and goes no further. Jesus was prepared for when the evil day came. He did not return evil for evil, but overcame evil with good. Not just in his death, however, he did this throughout his life. He interceded, bringing justice, light, and truth to those in need. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from this bondage after 18 years? Jesus came as the divine warrior king, riding forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. We read in Psalm 45, verse 4, which is why the New Testament, in in the book of Revelation, this divine warrior king is symbolized apocalyptically as mounted on a white horse, being called faithful and true. Truth, humility, and justice, faithful and true. How does he do battle? It tells us in Revelation 19.11, with justice he judges and wages war. It's not a very conventional battle, now is it? With justice he judges and wages war. In this world, war is filled with injustice and oppression, but not the kind of war he wages. I mean, do you see how that is just opposite of worldly war? Which is why I say if we actually read the text of Paul with discerning eyes, it ought to make us at least chuckle a bit. Because it's so contrary to what we think of as armor and warfare. It's the exact opposite. So whose armor? It's Yeshua's. The Deliverer's. Jesus. It's His armor. Who's fit? You see, it begs the question, if it's Jesus' armor, the divine warrior king, then why are we wearing it? And how in the world is it ever going to fit us? You, you may remember when David was going to do battle uh, against Goliath, and Saul offered David his own armor. David tries it on, and of course it doesn't fit, so he turns it down. Now the true parallel to this is the fact that the weapons of worldly armor, that of the flesh, don't fit Jesus or his church. But, to be sure, it can feel like if that's Jesus' armor, it certainly doesn't fit us, right? <laughs> Well, it doesn't. It doesn't fit us individually, and it was never designed to fit you individually. It's designed to fit the church. There's been a theme building from the start of this letter from Paul to its final exhortation where we are now. In Ephesians 1.22, we read this in, in verse 23, and, and God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills Everything in every way. In Ephesians three seventeen through 19, Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power, what? Together with all the Lord's holy people, all the saints, to make the love of Christ our own in all its width and length and height and depth. To know, experientially, to know that love that surpasses knowledge, that we might 
be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. So filled to the measure of the fullness of God in chapter 3. The fullness of Him who fills everything in every way in chapter 1. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that Christ gave gifts as uh, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints, the holy people of God, for the work of ministry, all with the goal that we would become fully grown up in Christ, that we, the church, would attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Reminds me of Paul, known by his Roman name Saul, or his Jewish name, rather, Saul. Paul's his Roman name, Saul was his Jewish name. He didn't actually get a name change on the road to Damascus, just for the record. I know that's popular lore, but we don't ever read that anywhere in the Bible. That was just his two names. He had more than two names, to be sure, but his Roman name and his Jewish name. So Saul, on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Well, who is he persecuting? The church. Why are you persecuting me? Why? Because Jesus understood, go figure, that the church is the fullness of him, that he fills everywhere and every place through his people, the church, that we are his body. Amen? And how are we filled with the fullness of him who fills everything? How are we filled to the fullness of Christ? Well, Ephesians 5, verse 18 and 19 tell us this, that when in our gatherings we are not getting drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, instead we are filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the church filled with the fullness of Christ that puts on the armor of God to become the intercessor that God was looking for in Isaiah 59 to carry out the war on war itself that Christ as King is leading us in. You see, Isaiah 59 was only partly fulfilled in Jesus. It's fully fulfilled in Jesus through His church and the rest of history. This armor could never fit you individually, but it can fit us when we are joined together and built together to become a dwelling of God by His Spirit. Getting up on a Sunday morning and dragging your behind out of bed and gathering to worship will help you walk in the armor of God more than any morning ritual in which you mentally put it on. Because it's designed to be worn together. Now, just gathering, of course, will not do it. Just showing up by itself will not do it, but that's a start. You can't do it without showing up. But we have to gather in order to be formed into the people of God. We have to intend to put the Word into practice, to make orthopraxy, right practice, at least as high a priority as orthodoxy, right doctrine. See, if we don't put orthopraxy as a high priority, right practice, then all our orthodoxy will only teach us to be better hypocrites. It is Christ's armor, and therefore it is sized to fit His body, not each individual. It's sized to fit His body. But now let's answer the 
question, what armor? What armor? And, and I know that there are hundreds of more things I could say from this text, if not thousands, that I'm not going to say. So I've got to focus in because you guys do want to have lunch at some point today on, on some things that are priority. What armor? It, it might surprise you to know the history of Brooks Brothers. You know, the clothing store. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's uh, still around, barely. It was founded um, in 1818, and believe it or not, it's had a very significant impact on culture. Yes, a clothing store, go, go figure. A very significant impact on culture. Uh, it introduced something radical to the clothing market. Get this, are you ready for radical? Off-the-shelf, ready-to-wear suits. Now, you might say, that's not radical. Right, that's because of its total impact on culture. <laughs> Complete and total impact on culture. See, prior to this, the only people who could afford suits were those who could have one custom-made. The, the men of New York City quickly discovered that most anyone could afford to look rich, even if they weren't rich. Famous people traveling from Europe in the mid-19th century to see this grand experiment called democracy regularly commented on how well-dressed Americans were. That may surprise you today, to be sure, but that was the shocker at the time. It was a beginning of the abolition of classes, or as it was viewed by many, the destabilization of society. You can look at it either way you'd like, the elimination of classes or the destabilization of society, but they were much the same thing. Brooks Brothers also unwittingly birthed the con, uh, the con man and paved the way for, you know, dress for success, those that were around in the 70s and 80s, uh, and fake it till you make it. Um, Today, we've, we've largely reversed the trend. In, in case there's a repeat of the French Revolution, maybe, I, I'm not sure. Now, highly successful people dress for failure. The famous seek to look essentially homeless so that no one will send them to the guillotine. The, the only problem is that ratty jeans costing $150 or more still have a label. And you'll, you'll be sent to the guillotine for your label one day, I'm sure, if we repeat the French Revolution. But I digress. Here's my point. We are not putting on Roman armor. We are, we are not trying to dress for violent warfare. This armor will never fool anyone into thinking we are at war. It's closer to the ratty jeans. No one will think we are rich, or actually, no one will think we're at war if we actually put on this armor. They would mock the idea that we were at war if they saw us wearing this armor. But that is Paul's point. I refer you to last week's message. We'll follow up on that. We have a belt of truth. Now we know in our culture that everyone is equal before the law. It's just that some people are more equal than others. In other words, if truth is not on your side, it can be bought with enough money. In the context of Isaiah 11, the truth as a belt is the attire of the root of David that sprouts and grows, the promised future Davidic king, the Messiah, who would rule. He would eliminate the legal injustices carried out by unjust courts. That's the point of him wearing a belt of truth. He would eliminate the legal injustices carried out by unjust courts. Truth, not the lies which are often bought and sold from judges, would be executed on behalf of the poor and needy. 
In Isaiah 11, truth is closely aligned with justice. Isaiah 59 describes injustice and oppression rooted in the lies, opposite of truth, of our hearts that, that our hearts have conceived. Therefore, justice, it says, was driven back and righteousness stood at a distance because truth was nowhere to be found. You see how righteousness, justice, truth are all kind of interwoven together in that context? We need the belt of truth. And this breastplate of righteousness... Isaiah 59, there the divine warrior would come wearing a breastplate of righteousness in response to God seeing that there was no justice in the land. So this word for righteousness, which refers to right living in relationship to God and others, hence just living, okay, it, it leans hard toward its meaning of justice. I mean, you can translate it righteousness or justice, but throughout the Old Testament, those two words are used as a, a dual description of the same thing. Just setting parallelisms constantly. So you can't understand one without the other. And certainly in this context, coming out of Isaiah 59, Paul's capturing that and bringing it forward to Ephesians 6. This idea of just living, bringing justice, is heavy into the meaning of this breastplate of righteousness. Now follow me for just a moment here. It's gonna, if you think this is required thinking, I need one minute of your time to require a little more thinking on your behalf or on my behalf, to help me out here. Disciple-making involves, according to the Great Commission, baptizing people, that's our adoption ritual, into God's household, baptizing them, and what? Teaching these new household members, these new heirs of God, to obey everything Jesus commanded, to obey Jesus' commands. Now, those commands in Matthew's Gospel, where we find the Great Commission, are primarily, though not exclusively, in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, righteousness, by Jesus' description... Obeying his commands is loving our enemies, forgiving those who offend us, giving to the one who asks without expecting a return, laying up treasure in heaven, not, uh, not fearing for how we will be provided for, and not judging the recipients so long as they are not enemies of the faith. It means doing good to all just as the Father does. It means praying and thinking in a manna economy. Give us today our daily bread. It means living as if our authenticity as disciples is not judged by what we say, but by our fruit, by our deeds. I could go on because there's so many more things in that sermon, but I think it gives you a, a glimpse of what they're about. And I would argue that if that is Jesus' commands, therefore that is righteousness, it is rather clear that that is justice too. That if we do those things, we will do a lot to bring justice to the table in a biblical sense of justice. And then he says, Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Verse 15. Now, now, to be sure, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is that gospel. It's the message of God. That's, that is that gospel. But what is this having our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel? What do, you, what do your feet do? They carry you where you're going. It's the path you walk. They, they have to do with how you live and act, right? Paul said earlier in the letter, I urge you to live a life, or literally to walk worthy of the calling which you have received. What is that worthy of the calling? Well, it's first, to, to walk worthy, you have to have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. If we're going to be ready to stand when the day of evil comes, our feet must be fitted for the right kind of shoes. Shoes crafted to match the gospel of peace, of shalom, so that we walk worthy of our calling. 
But do you catch the irony there? You're putting on armor. But armor is for war, and these are shoes fitted for the great announcement of peace. The gospel, the great announcement of peace. Violence is the very thing that robs humans of shalom. And yet we are to announce this gospel of peace. That is part of our armor. Again, this is why I suggest that if we read it in light of what Paul intends, we might just chuckle a little as we're going through. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who gospel lies, who proclaim peace, shalom, to, who, who bring good tidings of good, or who, who gospel lies good, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. You see, we are an army who goes out announcing shalom, non-war, to the world, and in doing so, we defeat the powers of this dark world who proclaim the lie that we have to kill one another, distrust one another, hate one another, live in rage toward one another. Because that's the only way we're going to survive. And yet we go out announcing peace. We do battle against them as we bring peace to God's new people. I, I want you to capture that. Because... That gets to the very core of what Paul is intending to communicate here. We are an army who goes out announcing shalom, non-war, to the world. Peace, non-war, to the world. And in doing so, we defeat the powers of this dark world who proclaim the lie that we have to kill one another, distrust one another, hate one another, live in rage toward one another at all. We actually do battle against them as we bring peace and announce it to them so that they can participate as God's new people. In Isaiah 11, where we find the promise of the future Davidic king wearing the belt of truth that we referred to earlier, the very next verses read this way, the wolf will lie down with the, uh, I'm sorry, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like uh, the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And might I say, God is not concerned with animals here. I'm not saying God's not concerned with animals. I'm simply saying God's not concerned with animals here. That text isn't about animals. If I can borrow from Paul, who said, don't muzzle the ox as it treads the grain... He says, God wasn't concerned with animals, but with those who preach the gospel. Well, if that's true, how much more can we read in Isaiah, which is clearly a metaphor for peace throughout the world, that that is the case. As God's people, we are to do no harm in all his holy mountain. And we live, as we live out this celebration of lay day, you know, flower necklaces instead of armaments, as as we follow this absurd plan of of a cross as a means of defeat, of laying down our lives for the sake of others. That absurd plan. Yes, absurd to human thinking, but not absurd at all because it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen? Amen. As we do so, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, which is pretty thoroughly, just for the record. The waters cover the sea quite thoroughly, to be sure. The shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Verse 16. Well, we're certainly going to need faith. 
If we're doing battle by not doing battle, we're going to need faith because our tendency is to want to do battle by doing battle. But here we're going to do battle by not doing battle, but by announcing peace. If we're following the one who defeated Rome by being crucified by Rome, if we are bringing shalom to others, forgiveness of sins rather than retribution, restoration rather than rage, the enemy is going to lie to us and tell us it is foolish, because it sure will seem that way at times, that it isn't working. We will need a shield of faith. Amen? We usually define working, by the way. You know, it's not working, but we define working um, differently than the Bible defines working. We, We define it in pragmatic ways. If it is working, well, the church will grow. Or if it is working, the poor will no longer have needs. Or if it is working, we won't have any difficulties. No, it is actually working because the acts themselves are the end good. Not retaliating is the end good. You're demonstrating the love of God. See, we we keep thinking it has to do something. No, that is the something. Feeding the poor is the end good. It's not as if Jesus on the last day is going to say, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. and Let me show you what, how that affected everything else and see it really was good. No, that was enough. That was enough. The biggest problem with walking by faith, well, it's that it takes faith. It requires that we are longing for a city to come, a heavenly city that is coming down out of heaven to earth as we do Christ's will on earth as it is in heaven, a city which is, well, it's not an earthly kingdom. And in our idea, if we walk by faith, we'll just get a good earthly kingdom, which shows that it's actually not faith at all because we keep waiting for the earthly kingdom. And then there's the helmet of salvation. Now, two things I'll offer here. First, In Isaiah, where it mentions the helmet of salvation, um, it was a deliverance, a salvation from uh, from temporal enemies and injustices, and not only a future salvation in heaven. Now, while the New Testament adds this eternal element, it does not do so at the expense of the earthly bodily deliverance. Remember Jesus, when he heals the man that comes in, being brought on a mat, Tells him his sins are forgiven. He gets big argument with the Pharisees, come at him upset. He says, but, well, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He also says to the paralytic, get up and walk. That, that we might know that Jesus has authority to give eternal salvation. He also brings about earthly shalom and liberation in people's lives now. See, we're not talking about a Gnostic salvation of souls only. Oh, we had 25 souls saved. Well, what happened to their lives? That's just the souls we're usually concerned with. But that's not the kind of salvation he brings. It's whole person salvation. It's whole person salvation. So the first thing is, the salvation had a temporal element to it, not purely an eternal element. Secondly, this helmet of salvation, it goes on the head. And we are the body of him who fills all in all. Jesus is always leading the way in whole person salvation. He is the head and will remain the head. A document from the 3rd century Syrian church called the Teaching of the Apostles notes that when the overseer of the congregation, listen to this, when, when the overseer made peace within the congregation, and they did this when they gathered, they're going to have communion. Is there any ought that needs to be talked about? Okay, you guys are having trouble? Let's get that resolved. Come up here. We're going to talk to you. 
And if they could get it resolved right then, they could partake of communion. If not, well, we'll get together through the week. We're going to get this resolved by next Sunday. <laughs> okay? So when they did that, he says, in doing that, this overseer is a helper for God, that the number of those being saved may increase, for this is the will of the Lord. And, and um, Alan Kreider adds this, commenting on it. Or actually, uh, I'm sorry, this document adds this. It's right in the document. It is God whose work it is to save people. God calls humans to help him by praying the Lord's Prayer and making peace. Pray the Lord's Prayer and live in peace. When we do that, God will work to save people. The helmet of salvation. You see, in Ephesians context, we are no longer children of rage. We are warriors of light or of peace. It's a strange way of doing battle, as war on war requires a holy imagination, to be sure. Again, Kreider writes this. He says, Origin envisioned the world as a great theater filled with spectators. Imagine the world as a great theater filled with spectators, all of them watching to see how the Christians respond to persecution. In the theater, a wide variety of people, including neighbors, scorn the believers and shake their heads at us as fools. Listen, the way Christians play their part in this spectacle is critical to their witness. God is with them. They must never forget that. When they are under torture, the eye of God is present with those who endure. Origen believes that patience, Christians treating their neighbors well and behaving courageously in the arena, is at the core of the church's witness. Now, we're not in the public arena of persecution presently, but we are in the arena of public conflict, of ideologies, of hatred and hostility. Do we gospelize announcing peace? Like lambs among lions, sheep among wolves, and trusting God to make a difference. According to Ephesians 3.10, we are performing before the rulers in heavenly places, But I think we're also on display before a watching world. Amen? When the day of evil comes, the day when we will want to forsake justice, righteousness, shalom, and the way of the cross, on the day we want to take up the sword or throw up a fist, will we trust? Will we trust? If we don't stand together on the day of evil, we won't stand at all. We must stand wearing garments of truth and righteousness, announcing peace, quenching doubt by faith, all for our Lord and head, Jesus Christ. We are the fullness of Him who fills the universe. Paul calls the church to prepare itself for the day of evil, as the Messianic warrior did, as Jesus did, knowing that the enemy is not other people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be discerning. Help us to discern the times. Help us to recognize that the war that we are called to battle in is, well, it's a bit of an absurdity. It's a war on war itself. It's, in truth, uh, far more like a celebration of flower necklaces than it is a celebration of military might. It's weakness allowing for God's power 
in God's mighty power. That's what we stand in, not in our own fleshly power. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen.